Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning, everybody. Today is Thursday, December 17, 2020. And we have a year-end wrap-up on DebtWire Municipals on the Muni Lowdown. We're going to take a look at the top stories and the top trends in public finance of this year uh, by our reporters. First off, we'll have Caitlin Devitt and Kathy O'Donnell. We'll talk about their market stories, and we'll move on to Abel Lorenz in Puerto Rico covering uh, the gubernatorial race and the major uh, debt restructuring deals in the Commonwealth. Then move on to Chuck Stanley, who will cover the Washington stimulus package and the CARES Act. And finally, Greg Clark, head of municipal research will tell us the major research reports done this year. All right, good morning, Kathy O'Donnell and Kaylin Devitt. How are you ladies? Pretty good, how are you? Pretty We're good, all, yeah, snow, but. Yes, uh, finally, uh, snow. I don't know about, uh, I know Kaylin, you're on Chicago, Kathy, you're in Harrisburg, but around the New York City area, we've got more snow in one day than all of last winter. So it's been, a, it's a major snowstorm. So that's nice. Well, as they say in New York, we're tough, we're trog on and we'll keep going. <laughs> get out the sleds, get out the skis. That's right. All right. So ladies, I know um, both of you have written some great stories this year and both of you have focused on uh, market stories in public finance. Tell us some of the highlights that you found out this year. Well, looking back at the year, it was a pretty wild year, as everybody knows. It's actually a little amazing. I think that we are at where we're at right now with the market. I mean, you know, yields and demand, given what we saw this year in particular in March. In March, you know, the market volatility, in, it started in like mid-March, was probably more than many people that we were talking to had ever seen or had seen in a long time. We're talking yield moves as much as 50 basis points a day, and there was massive outflows. Um, looking back in last night, I was reading through some of the stories, and it kind of brought me back. Everything went on the day-to-day -day calendar, except a few very kind of high-grade deals. So everything really froze, and liquidity became a real problem on the secondary, especially in high yield, which saw real big outflows. And for the year, um, even though we've now seen inflows for investment grade um, outflows have remained for the year <clears throat> in high yield, although we've seen several consecutive weeks with inflows into high yield. But March, the outflows were um, so high in late March and April that for the year, we're probably going to end it with uh, um, some outflows. And, you know, we did, we saw it in high, just keeping with high yield tobacco and Puerto Rico's Cofina were the two main credits that I think saw a lot of sell-off when, when, when we hit that big sell-off. Um, but everything sort of froze and we all kind of dealt with it for a while. Remember, Kathy? I certainly, certainly do. And I think um, as, as people were saying to me, the March sell-off uh, reminded people, um, as one expert told me at the time, that the price of liquidity in the municipal market can at times be very, very high. I think people often think of munis as kind of a safe, but people found out that it can be quite expensive um, when you need to uh, sell, especially when there was such dislocation like we saw in March. And one of the perennial issues, of course, that they, they mention is that um, you know, mutual fund flows have become concentrated 
in a handful of big mutual funds. And so when they need to sell, particularly, um, you know, some of the less liquid credits at the amounts that they need to sell, I mean, they have very, very big, you know, positions. There's not a lot of folks who can absorb like $50 million blocks of bonds. So it certainly was a very challenging time, as, as Caitlin and I both remember. Yeah, it exposed. We're all sort of going with the COVID. We're all sort of undergoing sort of, you know, a stress test just in general. And that was a bit of a stress test and exposed some of the structural weaknesses probably with the market and with mutual fund flows and how much they can impact the market performance. But then the Fed came in, they set up some programs to support short-term bonds and they set up the MLF and Congress passed CARES and the market started to calm down. So so we started to see that calming down, but you know, with Kathy and I continued to cover it and, and analysts and traders and portfolio managers we we're talking to continue to sort of warn about high yield in particular. I think everybody still sort of has their eye on what's going on with all, with all credits, but uh, with the idea of credit deterioration and lack of liquidity, particularly in high yield. And so that prompted us to start to look at some pricing and some trading issues that people were talking to us about in um, in high yield. And so we, we did some stories on on uh, evaluation, how bonds are evaluated in a high yield market, which has some problems with liquidity and some trading, some surprisingly sort of high trading that we were seeing in some big uh, deal, high profile, high yield names. Kathy, I don't know if you wanna talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, certainly, um, you know, as, as, as you, pretty much everyone, I guess, um, recalls or many people who follow the municipal market recalls, um, there was, you know, essentially this fire sale for like two or three days, um, you know, in the muni market. And I think um, uh, if, if I'm correct, I think that there was, I know that I think the week ended um, March 18th, there was like 12.2 billion of outflows. And then uh, the next week there was like nearly 14 billion of outflows. So there was this, this time frame when it was just, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, major kind of uh, sell-off and then kind of things did a 180 after that I think when you know once the Fed came in and the, the you know the congressional stimulus package that kind of prompted a 180 with people kind of going from a dramatic sell-off to a buying spree then mm-hmm. um, and you know one manager I spoke with said it might have been healthier for the muni market for that kind of you know burning to continue a bit longer um, because as Caitlin was saying you know, we talked to even now various fund managers, there's a good deal of concern that in this quest for yield that everybody is on um, and the continued flows, you know, the technical situation, um, that is kind of, um, you know, putting kind of, um, you know, a support under the market that the fundamentals really don't support. And um, if there is, and it could be that maybe the technicals continue, but if there is some kind of dislocation, again, um, you know, we often hear that, um, the fundamentals and some issues uh, really don't uh, support the prices. Yeah, I think we'll see. I mean, I think we're in an uncertain period right now in the transition, both with the federal administration and also, you know, with the vaccine as we sort of transitioning into a big vaccine rollout program, which um, a lot of people, I think, think is going to spur an account, um, uh, you know, a recovery. But we're in an uncertain period with credit deterioration, and yet the technicals remain really, you know, d- there's a lot of demand out there, um, which is why we're sort of ending the year where we're at, as I was saying in the beginning, and people are expecting that to continue. Maybe, 
you know, with demand outstripping supply, even though supply is supposed to be, you know, maybe hit some record highs, 500 billion or more than that next year. Um, to go back to some of the high yield stuff, one of the big stories we did was when we talked about evaluation, we talked about pricing and the difficulty of evaluating and valuing bonds in the high yield market. We looked at this Indiana tire, tire recycling company called Pyrolex. And we use that as sort of an illustration of this issue. This is a company, it was one of the first to default um, uh, based on the COVID, the COVID pandemic. It defaulted in early April, closed its facilities in Indiana, Germany. It announced or sort of an audit found that it might not even be able to continue as a going concern, in which we saw they ended up um, filing for bankruptcy in November. But despite all that early spring stuff, their bonds remain valued at 100. And even then we did another follow-up story in November when they filed for bankruptcy and their bonds, I think, I'd have to look back at that, but they're valued at around 90 at that time. So that sort of illustrates some of the problem when, um, when there's not a lot of liquidity and how pricing services um, are supposed to value bonds and sort of their methodology for that. So that was another kind of interesting story that we, we did a, uh, you know, an interesting story that we did a number of stories about in the middle of the year. Definitely, um, you know, some of the high yield names like um, like that Indiana Tire Recycler are, are the ones that often get mentioned. I know American Dream is another um, story and, and the Bright Line Rail Line in, in uh, Florida. Um, you know, those are, you know, as people would say, those were kind of speculative credits even before the challenges of this pandemic. Um, and both of them obviously, um, you know, uh, had to, to close in March, um, given that they're, you know, they both of them involve folks congregating in um, in close quarters. Um, you know, Florida, the Brightline passenger rail is still closed. Um, American Dream is, you know, is open, but they've certainly had some challenges. I know that the American Dream project, um, one of the things that secures the construction loan for that. Um, is um, a stake in two of the other properties that Triple Five owns, and um, there have been some some issues there. So, so these are certainly challenging times for some uh, projects that were already, you know, uh, uh, high yield projects. Yeah, you did some great stories on the on the Mall of America, the Triple Five on Mall of America with their property taxes. Um, which in Minnesota, which was interesting. But you mentioned Brightline, that was another big story. This was a deal, um, not, not Brightline Florida, but the Brightline West. This is gonna be a train project, was going to be, is gonna be a train project uh, between California and Nevada. And they, Brightline, the company came with what we kind of think was probably going to be the largest junk deal ever, $3.2 billion. And we followed that closely as they tried to shop it over several weeks. They made a lot of changes to the deal, including um, whittling it down to $2.4 billion and offering a tender and changing some other terms, trying to kind of whet investor appetite. But in the end, the deal didn't get done. And they might bring it back. They probably will. This is a private activity bond deal. And the the paths have been reallocated by California and Nevada, but are expected to probably come, be able to come back next year. So it's we're not saying it's dead, but it was interesting for sure that it didn't get done. And um, we were looking at whether or not is that because of that particular project? Was that, that a function of the market? Was that, you know, does that show sort of a limit 
on how much appetite people have for these sort of speculative high yield deals. Yeah, it's going to definitely be interesting to see, um, you know, whether they they bring that again. I, I as I understand, I think uh, Caitlin as well and I both understand that it is they are going to try to bring it back um, next year. But um, you know, it, it it is something that you know you want to see if it, you know how how deep the appetite is for for those sorts of things. I know that um, you know Brightline the the Florida bonds anyway. Um, they were part of a tender offer um, just recently, and they certainly have, um, with this throughout this whole pandemic situation, the Brightline Florida bonds have certainly taken investors on the you know pretty uh, wild ride. For example, the six and a half of 49s, which is one of the bonds that were just tendered for, they're now at 95. I just looked, and back on March 5th, they traded around 103. Then they plunged to around 80 on the 23rd of March. Uh, so very, very definitely a wild ride for uh, high yield investors there. So it's uh, very interesting times, and we'll be certainly keeping a close eye on that uh, on the Brightline story uh, uh, into next year, as well as the others. Yes, very uh, interesting uh, wild times and interesting year. Obviously, goes without saying about the pandemic. But I was just going to um, briefly. Re, not recap, but highlight what you were alluding to before, Kaylin, about the MLF and the CARES Act. At, right now, the Fed has mentioned that at the end of this year, the MLF will no longer exist. And only two issuers t- uh, took advantage, well, I guess the word is it, t- basically used it. Took advantage, yeah. And I guess I guess so, yeah, because uh, it was sort of like a backstop for them. Um, uh, the state of Illinois and the MTA. It's very relevant right now because the, stim- the current stimulus package has no aid to state and local governments, which will impact um, what they're going to do going forward. So we'll see in 2021 if there's if that's going to spur a series of downgrades. I know the rating agencies are very concerned about what's going on. But ladies, I want to thank you so much for your work. And uh, it's been great. And hopefully uh, things will look up in 2020 with the vaccine and moving forward. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Our pleasure, Young. All right, let's welcome back to the show, Eva Lorenz. Eva, how are you? Fine, how are you? All right, uh, I'm up here in snowy New York. I'm sure it's nice and sunny down in San Juan where you were. Yes, well, we <laughs> have a rainy day today, but but it's sunny, yes. I'm sure you don't own any coats, I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's talk about, it's. it's been a crazy year and it, and so t- since you cover Puerto Rico, tell us the major stories uh, with the Commonwealth. Well, besides the COVID-19, uh, this year uh, we had the election and, of course, new Progressive Party candidate Pedro Pierluisi won by a majority of the votes uh, in uh, this election, even though um, he's a member of the same party that was uh, whose governor was ousted following protests back in the summer of 2019. However, Pierluisi will govern in a divided government because the opposition uh, Popular Democratic Party obtained a majority vote at the legislature. Um, Puerto Rico has had divided governments in the past, and but all, all of that has been with disastrous consequences because the legislature has always prevented the governor from putting into effect a, his own uh, government platform. And last time, of course, uh, Puerto Rico had a divided government. We couldn't pretty much do anything. 
uh, Pierluisi received uh, 32% of the vote and, the, po and uh, the Popular Democratic Party received about 31% and the rest of the vote went to other minority candidates at the legislature. So we are really governing with uh, next year with a divided government. And since his election, he has been making appointments to cabinet positions of individuals that should not have problems getting confirmed by a Senate that will be controlled by the opposition. He, and he has less some of the current cabinet members. For instance, he asked uh, uh, the Treasury Secretary to be part of his government, as well as the head of the Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority. Um, regarding Pierluisi's approach to the restructuring, he has told us, and he has also said publicly, that he plans to personally join the Financial Oversight and Management Board as an ex-officio member to ensure that the debt negotiations lead to a debt restructuring bill that is sustainable and payable. But of course, the opinion is divided at the legislature regarding this latest debt deal. So any legislation that that is needed to enable debt restructuring will be thoroughly scrutinized. Uh, Pierre Luisi also has said that he will make sure Puerto Rico does not incur a new debt unless it can pay it and ensure that the government uh, has four consecutive balanced budgets after the debt restructuring because um, he wants the uh, Financial Oversight and Management Board to leave as soon as possible. Now, uh, what has happened with debt restructuring? Well, the Financial Oversight and Management Board on November 20 approved a new offer to creditors to serve as a basis for negotiations towards a new plan of adjustment for the central government. And this debt deal, this offer will cut the debt to about 30, by about 34%. Um, this offer was made public after Judge Laura Taylor Swain ordered the government to come up with some form of debt deal uh, by February, because as you know, we have been in, in, in bankruptcy since 2017. Uh, tomorrow, the board is slated to have a public meeting and it's at a time when also he has uh, some new members. So we expect them to touch on the subject of debt restructuring. Now, the latest offer uh, made to settle the central government debt and that of the unsecured claims provides for 11.9 billion in payments and broken down into about 6 billion in cash that will be paid upfront and about 5 billion in new general obligation bonds. It also has a contingent value instrument of about 1 billion. And this contingent value instrument uh, consists of general obligations bonds that will be paid using a portion of the sales and use tax if tax collections exceed the estimates of the fiscal plan that was certified in May. The amendment, amended terms also proposed an 8.5% reduction to government pensions to, that are higher than $1,500 a month. So people who make one th more than $1,500 a month will get this cut, or these are about 330,000 uh, retirees, or I should say 30% of about 330,000 retirees. Uh, previously, the board had negotiated a debt deal with creditors, but because of the detrimental impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on government revenues, the board opted to make a new offer. Under a prior debt deal that was negotiated in February, the government had agreed to pay about 1.5 billion 
in debt service, not included uh, $400 million that he must pay under another debt deal uh, to restructure uh, COFINA. The board now is proposing debt service payments uh, of about $1 billion. Generally speaking, the latest uh, board offer uh, has been viewed more favorably by uh, Pedro Pierluisi, by the governor and other stakeholders, but Pierluisi has said he will oppose any cuts to government pensions. Uh, the governor also opposes any more cuts to cities. And of course, he has said that he wants to revisit the fiscal plan because he believes that the uh, numbers underestimate the performance of the economy. For instance, uh, Pierluisi believes the island will get a higher amount in healthcare funds than what uh, the board has projected. And he also took issue with the fiscal plan's contention that revenues from a 4% tax that is imposed on certain manufacturing firms uh, and the expiration of patents will go down because uh, Congress is now looking at legislation to attract uh, more U.S. manufacturing firms to, to uh, specifically to Puerto Rico. Uh, the FOMB and the creditors uh, released recently some mediation materials, some of the materials that have been discussed during the mediation process. And those materials appear to show that uh, the F board as well as the creditors are far from reaching an agreement. Uh, for instance, the uh, bondholders put out a 76-page document objecting to the assumptions of the fiscal plan that was certified in May, which of course is used, being used uh, for as a, as a basis for the plan of adjustment. Uh, the fiscal plan uh, classified the effect of the hurricanes, earthquakes, and COVID-19 on the economy as severe, and it projected that Puerto Rico's economy will contract by 4% in fiscal year uh, 20, and with a mild 0.5 recovery in fiscal year 21, and it also projected a central government deficit from fiscal year 32 onward and a total primary surplus of about $8 billion between fiscal year 2020 and fiscal year uh, 32, compared to about $23 billion surplus in a prior certified fiscal plan. The creditors also argue in the mediation documents that after saying in the 2019 fiscal plan that it could devote 9.2% of its own resources to the service, the, fisc the board is now saying that it can only uh, you, uh, set aside 8.6% for uh, the restructuring. And the creditors are also saying that the Puerto Rico is overestimating the impact of COVID-19 on the economy because of, among other things, the flow of billions of dollars in federal fund reconstruction funds. Uh, Puerto Rico also this week began uh, to vaccinate the population against the illness and it expects to complete that process by the summer. Now the fiscal, the oversight board in response uh, filed some documents that pretty much uh, refuted the arguments of creditors. And of course they are saying among, among other things that they are very much trying to manage government spending and that they have a, an $8.3 billion surplus between fiscal year uh, 2018 and 2020. Uh, and that that surplus is gonna be used uh, to uh, as a core element in the latest offer. 
So that's pretty much it on what we have had in Puerto Rico so far over the last couple of months. Yes, it's been a very uh, taxing time for everyone. Mm -hmm. But um, but thank you for your uh, work, Ava. Uh, stay safe down there, and we'll talk to you again. Have a, have, have a great new year. Thank you very much. Same to you. All right, now it's time for Chuck Stanley in our nation's capital. Chuck, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So I know, obviously, a, a lot of eyes have been focused on Washington this year and in terms of what our federal government did, and it's been a topsy-turvy year. I just do want to note for our listeners out there that we are recording on Thursday, December 17th, to keep that in mind of what's going on. A lot of things are in flux, so Chuck, give us uh, the major events of this year so far. Right. I mean, I think the, you know, probably the biggest story to come out of the Capitol this year was passage of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Stability Act, which we usually shorten to CARES. Um, that was passed in the last days of March as uh, an aid package to alleviate the immediate impact of the COVID-19 outbreak, which was, you know, coming into its its first wave and, and caused a lot of uh, confusion and panic throughout uh, the country, both as a public health crisis and a potential economic crisis. So this, uh, the CARES Act was a massive aid package that uh, had a price tag of around $2 trillion dollars and provisions that impacted really virtually every sector of the economy. I think most, most relevant to DebtWire Municipals readers would be around $150 billion in direct aid to state, local, territorial, and tribal governments through the Coronavirus Relief Fund. There was also another $36 billion in aid for the transportation sector, including $25 billion in public transit, which uh, continues to be really hurt by the crisis. And then there was the establishment of a $500 billion fund that to provide loans to both private and public sector borrowers. And this resulted in the establishment of the municipal liquidity facility, which has basically operated as a backstop to ensure that public sector issuers don't get locked out of the market. This was particularly important during the spring when the crisis first began to rapidly escalate. The muni market saw uh, a lot of outflows, and there was some concern that state and local governments and agencies might not have access to credit. There were, of course, a lot of other provisions in CARES that went towards supporting the economy more broadly. Uh, that included supplemental unemployment benefits for people who lost their jobs due to the crisis, uh, forgivable loans aimed at keeping businesses afloat and employees on payroll. And those, I think, indirectly softened the blow to state and local governments by boosting consumer spending and avoiding a potential collapse in sales and income revenues. All of those seem to have had a positive effect on the economy, but we're now really at a point where many of those measures authorized under CARES have either expired or about to expired. And as you know, we're still at the height of the public health crisis with more cases, more deaths, and more uncontrolled spread of the virus than we saw even during the previous peak in late spring. Right, now, despite the size of that aid package, it seems it's been a sense of from both the Democrats and the Republicans that more aid is needed to get us through the crisis. Can you tell us where negotiations stand as of right now and whether it seems that something you think will get done in the near future? Right, this has been a, a topic of debate between Republicans and Democrats really since CARES passed. Uh, I think the fact that this debate occurred during an election year didn't make negotiations any easier. Democrats were saying 
from the time that CARES passed that they thought more aid would be needed. They passed an even larger aid bill out of the House of Representatives in May, but Republicans were a little more reticent to call for more aid. And negotiations on a new aid package didn't really begin until late July when enhanced unemployment benefits under CARES began to expire. So at this point, uh, the GOP and Democrats both want uh, a, another relief package, but they want different things. So Democrats from the start have said state and local funding is, is really important. And Republicans really want to pass liability protections that would make it harder to bring lawsuits against employers over exposure to COVID. So there are some areas of agreement on uh, issues like more unemployment assistance, more aid to businesses and school. Uh, but there has been disagreement on how much an aid bill should ultimately cost. And right now, there is some optimism after uh, you know various periods of failed negotiation that a more limited $900 billion aid bill could pass. Uh, that could be passed by the time our listeners hear this. And the discussions right now uh, surround a bill that would include some areas of agreement between the parties, but excludes sort of the two main, main points of contention between Democrats and Republicans. And that's liability protections for employers that Republicans want and state, state and local aid that Democrats want. Obviously, cutting state and local funding from the aid package is bad news for muni issuers. But I think state and local governments will benefit from some of the items that will be included in a prospective package. Uh, funding for transit is going to be very important for major metros. Uh, for instance, the New York's MTA has already said they're going to stave off some devastating service cuts and layoffs that they had anticipated putting in place just on the assumption that aid will come through. And some of the stimulus money, uh, rent, mortgage assistance will flow through to state and local governments in the form of tax revenue. So where does that leave the incoming administration? Will President-elect Biden try and pass additional aid? Well, it's, it's definitely an interesting question because this aid bill, assuming it does pass, will leave Democrats and Republicans both wanting more. Uh, whether that translates to legislation, we'll have to see. It's important to, to keep in mind, I think, that control of the Senate is still up for grabs. If the Democrats can flip Georgia's two Republican-held Senate seats in a pair of special elections that are scheduled for grant, uh, January, they would hold a narrow majority based on Vice President Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote. In that scenario, you know they would still certainly need Republican Republican votes to pass any legislation uh, to for additional aid, but it would give Democrats control of the Senate calendar. And so they could call a vote on, on any legislation that comes out of the House, which they haven't been able to do under Republican-led leadership. Um, Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has basically said that he's not going to call any bill up for a vote unless he believes that a majority of the Republicans in the Senate will vote to support it. Um, in the event that the GOP holds the Senate, President-elect Biden has stressed that he plans to try and reach across the aisle and work with Republicans. And um, to sort of support that thesis, he's pointed out that he has a years-long relationship with Leader McConnell from his days in the Senate. So perhaps the two sides can work out a deal. If nothing else, it may give us an early sense of how much common ground is possible between the new administration and Senate Republicans, given how polarized the politics are right now. Yes, that's very interesting. And uh, we shall see, as of this recording, supposedly both sides are very close to that's the uh, stimulus package, but we will continue to monitor. And Chuck, thank you so much for your time and your work this year and uh, have a great new year. Thanks so much, Young. You too. All right, let's uh, welcome back Greg Clark, 
Detwire is head of municipal research. Greg, how are you? Good, Young. How are you? All right. Uh, good to have you here. Let's talk about a couple of research reports you wrote during the year. Greg, tell us more about them. Thanks, Young. Well, many of our listeners are familiar with the saga of the American Dream Mall, which is across the Hudson River from Manhattan in East Rutherford, New Jersey. It's in the Meadowlands Sports Complex and adjacent to Giant Stadium. The mall, to say the least, has a long and involved history. Its original name was Xanadu, but construction on that project ended in 2009 when the financial crisis of that era, I guess is one way to put it, took hold and, and uh, upended the project. Uh, the project then lay dormant for a while until Triple Five Group of Canada, which specializes in what it calls tourism, retail, and entertainment complexes, quote unquote, took over the project. Triple Five is probably uh, most famous for building the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota. So then how do municipal bonds fit into all of this? Well, about one-fifth of the money to build American Dream was obtained through municipal bonds. The Public Finance Authority of Wisconsin issued two types of bonds for American Dream in June of 2017. The larger of the two sales was $800 million payable from what are called payments in lieu of taxes, and the smaller bond issue was almost $300 million payable from incremental sales taxes to be generated at the mall once it was built. So that's over a billion dollars in muni bonds that were incidentally sold without bond ratings. Right, the payments in lieu of taxes pilots, I guess. Right, yeah, I right. So as sometimes happens, as sometimes that happens with large projects as this, I understand that American Dream missed its originally scheduled opening date. Right, when the bonds I mentioned were issued, again, that was in June of 2017, the grand opening of American Dream was uh, expected on April 1 of 2019, but that date was missed. Uh, project completion, according to uh, one of the uh, one of the disclosures on uh, on the municipal bonds website, Emma, was delayed for a number of reasons, including inclement weather and the time needed to complete electrical inspections. Partial opening, though, did occur in October of 2019, so about six months late uh, was partial opening. Grand opening had been scheduled for April 1 of 2019. And the report we're talking about today, American Dream Investors May Soon Face Additional Wake-Up Calls, came out on March 6th of this year. What prompted that report and what did you say at that time? Well, the report was prompted by two things. Our initial motivation was that Thursday... March 19th was when the mall's first retail stores and the DreamWorks water park were to open. So we were looking forward to that. Oh, we weren't looking forward to it in the sense that we we're gonna be splashing around in the water park. <laughs> we're, we're looking forward to it in the sense that it would give an idea of, uh, of how receptive uh, to the mall the public would be. Um, the second prompt was that concerns in early March were emerging about the coronavirus, even though they hadn't yet reached the crisis level that emerged uh, soon after our report came out. And what's happened since your report was written? Well, as you might guess, the mall has suffered from the lockdowns and closures, and in any event, people don't want to spend a lot of time around strangers. Uh, the mall's not totally closed, but crowds are sparse. Whether the mall will be economically viable in the long run is anybody's guess. 
Right, and I, I've, I have mentioned in previous podcasts that I, I did check out American Dream twice. But going back to, the, going back to your uh, report, and prior to the virus, there were already concerns about the mall's viability. Isn't that correct? Yeah, even before the virus hit, there was, as you know, a trend toward online shopping, and the mall's location was thought to be a problem. Triple Five assumed the mall would attract visitors to and residents of New York City and its suburbs, and it's not easy to get from Manhattan, for instance, to the Meadowlands. Um, and when, when we wrote our report, we noted that the mall's major attractions, such as the water park and the indoor ski slope, which I understand you uh, you patronized, were, were expensive. Yes. So the, so the financial jury is still out on this one. That's correct. Now, I want to move on to the other report. Um, let's discuss that one, which is called Ion Data, Long-Term Trend in Higher Education Enrollment. Yeah, in terms, uh, in general terms, Ion Data is a series of reports on various topics of interest to the municipal bond market. In addition to higher education, which this particular publication uh, was about, we focused on healthcare, highways and how they're financed, uh, water and sewer bonds, electric revenue bonds, and there may be a couple of others I can't recall offhand. Um, the, these the, when we focused on something that's over the course of a week, for instance, uh, higher education, we're just talking about one particular re, uh, report, but during the week that that report came out, there were probably two or three other reports on the higher ed sector, which illustrated data that we think would be uh, of use to our subscribers. And when we don't, when we don't comment on a sector, a credit sector, such as higher ed or healthcare, we comment on individual bond issues of interest to the market, such as New Jersey's recent general obligation bond issue. So when was this particular ION data published? This one on trends in higher ed was published on September 15th of this year. And, uh, and again, uh, this is only one aspect of our higher ed coverage. The, the ION data is, is only one aspect. Um, we've done a bunch of news stories and research reports throughout the year. On April 16th, for instance, we published a report called Brace for Impact, a closer look at lower rated private colleges and universities in which we studied credit characteristics of private schools rated by Standard & Poor's in the triple B range, meaning uh, triple B plus, straight triple B and triple B minus. Uh, at that time in April, we, noticed, we, we noted that the higher education sector would receive 14, over, over $14 billion, I think it was 14.3 from the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Securities, Security Act, the CARES Act in other words. Mm -hmm. But we also opined that it was unlikely that that amount would be enough to stabilize that part of the US economy. Right, but let's get back to the ion data. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Got carried away there. Uh, even before onset of the coronavirus, higher ed was a sector of the beauty market that merited attention due to rising prices and some inability of recent graduates to find suitable careers. These concerns increased due to this year's recession, which makes private college prices even less competitive with their public counterparts and, uh, and also due to greater availability of remote learning options. Uh, our report, the Ion Data Report, included a graph that showed enrollment for private and public types of schools from 1970 through 2018. So we covered a pretty good range of data there. 
Yeah, that's a that's a, a big wide range. So ultimately, what did the graph show? Well, although private nonprofit schools showed steady growth during that time, enrollments at public and private for-profit schools peaked about 10 years ago and have since declined. Just as, uh, so the, the, these terms that I'm using might be, uh, or might not be widely used by people who are listening. Uh, a private school, a classic private school would be Harvard. Uh, a classic public school would be, for instance, Michigan State. And a classic private for-profit school would be someplace like the University of Phoenix. Uh, but in general, given the other factors I cited, rising costs few, and fewer career options for alumni, it's questionable whether the favorable trend for private nonprofits can continue. As, as we know, they're much more, much more expensive than public schools. And finally, we concluded that bondholders have less reason to be concerned about public schools, which are cheaper because they receive significant, even though uh, perhaps declining, state support. So that was that was uh, what we covered in, in that report. Well, Greg, very well done. I know I want to mention um, the person that works with the Anthema. I think you guys did a great job this year with your research reports. So thank you. Keep up the good work. Uh, Greg, thanks for your time today. Stay safe out there. Uh, good luck with all the snow you got up there. I'm sure you got a decent amount. Pretty good amount. Yeah, it looks like it finally stopped. <laughs> okay. So. Well, best wishes for 2021 and have a great new year. Thanks, Young. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. And that's our year-end show for this year. We thank you uh, for listening in. Uh, many thanks to our reporters, Kaylin Devitt, Kathy O'Donnell, Eva Lorenz, Chuck Stanley, uh, Head of Research, Greg Clark, and our producer, Christian Ayala. And always, thanks to your listeners out there who tuned in uh, in a very crazy year. But we hope that uh, you stay safe, you stay healthy, and best wishes for 2021. We'll catch you in the new year. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Muni Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.